On this episode, I'm in the room with author Brandon O'Brien, working to demystify the writing process. Welcome to In The Room, episode number 73. I am your host, Ryan Hughley, and for those of you who may not be familiar with me, I'm the founding and lead pastor of Ridgeline Church here in Salt Lake City, Utah, and the author of Eight Hours or Less, writing faithful sermons faster. In the Room is my opportunity to have conversations with authors, artists, professors, and pastors, and to learn about virtually every topic imaginable and give you a chance to listen in. Today, I'm talking with author Brandon O'Brien. Brandon is Director of Content Development and Distribution for Redeemer City to City, where he coordinates, edits, and shepherds writing projects with Pastor Tim Keller, which is amazing. And he's also working with urban church planters around the world. He's written a new book called Writing for Life and Ministry, A Practical Guide to the Writing Process for Teachers and Preachers. Now, I've read a number of books on the craft of writing, many of which I have found extremely helpful, but I've honestly not come across a book that start to finish is as helpful as this one is on so many fronts, so I'm very excited for you to get to hear about this. Now, even if you're not a pastor or a teacher who wants to publish a book, even if you don't aspire to write the next great American novel, we all communicate through writing in so many different ways, which means we should all work to grow in our ability to write. And to that end, Brandon's book is a gift. He lives with his wife, Amy, and their two kids in uptown Manhattan, and he was kind enough to give me a full hour of his time. We're going to cover a lot of ground, and I'm looking forward to you hearing this. So once again, I want to invite you into the room for my conversation with Brandon O'Brien. Well, Brandon, thanks so much for uh, coming on In the Room. I really, really love your new book, Writing for Life and Ministry. So excited to talk to you about that, but also excited to get to know you uh, since we haven't had an opportunity to meet. So for people who aren't familiar with you, why don't we just go ahead and start with your background? So where were you born? Wow. Okay. So I was uh, born and raised in Arkansas. Okay. And uh, in born in El Dorado, which no one's heard of, uh-huh. and raised in Bentonville, which is home of Walmart. Most oh, people, wow. Okay. Uh, are familiar with that, though. Yeah. Uh, though I like to clarify that by the time I graduated high school, Bentonville was still a really boring small town. Okay. Uh, it it has developed into a pretty cool place now, but okay, that's not what I grew up with. So everything <laughs> so, from birth all the way through high school was all in Arkansas. Yeah, and college actually went to college oh, okay. in the state. So yeah, did you, you grow up in a Christian home? I did. Yeah, in a Christian home in a very uh, evangelical mm-hmm. town in a very conservative state. So yeah, it was a I had a, a fairly um, yeah kind of a bubble Christian yeah. bubble growing up. Yeah, what did your parents do as you were growing up? Uh, my mom was a secretary at our church, okay. and uh, my dad worked for um, uh, Tyson Foods, which is yeah. a major um, food producer. And so we were one of the few families in town that didn't have a Walmart connection. Okay, uh, I played soccer with the Walton grandkids, but you know, okay. but we didn't. Uh, <laughs> but that was it. Okay. <laughs> so, um, so yeah. So I, you know, a lot of people talk about being at the church whenever the doors are open, but mm-hmm. I literally was there six days a week sometimes seven because uh, my mom worked there. So what uh, influenced it? I mean, that could, for some kids, that's like super positive for other kids. It was a negative. How did that impact you when you thought about local church growing up? That's a 
good and complicated question. Okay. <laughs> we could, we could do an hour sometime okay. just on that. Uh, you know, I think that probably on the one hand, there were some really, had some really difficult and, uh, I would say toxic experiences in church, mm-hmm. but probably the gift of being there six days a week is that I was also around just the people who kept the lights on mm-hmm. and the, uh, you know, just the sort of normal people who come in and out all the time. Yeah. And that's probably what saved the experience for me. Okay. Um, and so there were some, there were bad things, but I think a lot of people don't have enough of the good things to kind of counterbalance the hard ones. And I, and I did have a lot of really positive uh, experiences and, and examples. So. Okay. So where did you end up then after high school? You said you went to college in Arkansas. Where did you go and what'd you major in? Yep. Went to Washita Baptist University, okay. um, which some people have heard of. Uh, it's a great school. It's kind of like a really well-kept secret, I think. Yeah. Um, and it is, uh, went from there, majored in, I went back and forth for the first two years. I felt called to ministry, mm-hmm. uh, but didn't really want to go into ministry. And so I majored in English and wanted to be an English teacher. And okay. uh, then at some point thought that that's what Jesus was asking me to give up, yeah. you know, to go into ministry. Yeah. That's another long conversation on yeah. calling probably sometime. Yeah. Um, but ended up with a double major in biblical studies and English, uh, English lit. Is, is and, your, um, is what is the more toxic end of what you experienced growing up in church? Is that what caused some of the conflict you didn't want? If, if that's what a lot of ministry was, you didn't want to go into that or what caused that conflict for you? Yeah, that's a good question. I think at some level I had, I just loved, I loved literature and uh-huh. I was excited about the questions that people asked in those places and was less interested in the questions that people asked in church. <laughs> Um, and so I think that at some level I thought, uh, that I wanted to be able to engage and it also felt like a way, maybe I always kind of wrestled with whether I wanted to be a Christian in a non-Christian job or Christian, Christian job. Um, and I thought being, you know, kind of being a teacher in a non-Christian space at some point, I I tried to make that my calling Yeah, and, uh, that didn't. Take. Didn't pan out. Yeah. <laughs> so didn't pan out. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah, I think, but it wasn't necessarily that I thought that there was anything wrong with ministry, other than I just, I kind, I think I, I always wanted the, I didn't want that to be my entire world. Yeah. And I wanted to keep a, a world somewhere else. And, yeah. And so, um, so yeah, I kind of held on. But then the the literature thing, it's always been a love. So. Yeah. Um, has that informed the way that you think about scripture or you think about life and ministry and teaching? I mean, at this point, are you thankful that you did do that double major? Yeah, for sure. And I've told my wife that if I were ever independently wealthy or something, I would probably go back and do a master's degree or something in literature because I really still do love it. Yeah. Um, and I think it's, uh, I think it's absolutely shaped the way I think about the Bible I think that's where I first learned how much culture influences the way we see things because so much of the kind of Western canon of literature is dealing with cultural change, right? So, I mean, the the authors are people who are unhappy with what the world is like and they're trying to change it. Yeah. Um, And so you kind of see things through a different perspective there. And I don't know if this is the cause, but uh, like I just gravitate to the narratives in the Bible way Mm -hmm. more than to the letters and other things just because I find the storytelling really compelling. Um, and, and I don't know if that's because of the degree or if, if the reason I wanted to do the degree was already because 
I found the stories so interesting, you know, yeah. but I think, um, I, I like to sit with the ambiguity of those stories and yeah. other things rather than just the, the kinds of the, the more teaching yeah. passages in the new Testament. So, yeah. um, not that there's anything wrong with those, but yeah. I, but I like sitting, I've been rereading, reading and rereading the book of judges during, uh, this COVID lockdown. Just cause it's and, so uplifting. Exactly. I needed, needed a little something. encouragement. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> what what book of the Bible is appropriately depressing as That's a right. company to lockdown? Just so, this and Lamentations uh, over yeah, and over exactly. again. Exactly. <laughs> so, um, but I but I, there's just something about the story. There's just always more in a story, mm-hmm. right? You go back to it again, and there's something else there. And I just, I yeah, I think that that is certainly a part of the reason literature more broadly. Yeah, I love that. Well, and then I saw that you ended up going to Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. I went to undergrad at Trinity. um, Okay, great. So I had a bunch of relationship there. But did you go directly to that after college, knowing that that was kind of your path? We went from uh, college. My wife and I moved to Wheaton, and I did an MA at Wheaton College, and then my wife did an MA at Wheaton. Um, And it was actually right after Wheaton College that I started doing editorial work. Okay. Um, and that was and for that. what was leadership journal. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. yeah. And, um, was there full time, I guess maybe three years and then left full time work in the middle of that economic downturn, mm-hmm. 2009, 10, um, and went to Ted's for PhD. Okay. And, uh, and then, and then kept working and publishing as a, I called it self-employed. My dad called it unemployed. That's right. But, uh, <laughs> it's all about a, how you look at it. It's a fine line. Isn't That's right. It? Isn't there? <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, we we were in the Chicagoland area for about eight years, I guess. Totally. Okay. And so now you're working for uh, Redeemer City to City. Uh, That's right. So what, like post Trinity to working at Redeemer, how, what 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 happened in between there? Yeah, so there was a little stint uh, back in Arkansas when the degree was finished and um, we were, um, yeah, discerning what's next and had a, uh, the opportunity to be closer to my family in Arkansas and um, my wife's family's kind of scattered other places. And uh, I helped while we were there, kind of providentially, we moved there to move there. And then while mm-hmm. we were there, got the chance to help launch a college campus with my alma mater, Washington oh, cool. Baptist, uh, in partnership with a local church, uh, New Life Church, and um, got to offer a liberal arts degree in the context of a local church. And most of the extracurricular stuff was ministry internships and that kind of leadership development and that yeah. kind of thing. And so we were there for about four years, I guess four years, and then came to uh, New York City. Okay. So yes, right. we're, we've been on the move yeah. for, for the, a lot of years, it seems like. Yeah. And so talk a little bit about what you do now for Redeemer City to City. Yeah. So Redeemer City to City supports, um, uh, our, our goal is to see gospel, gospel movements in cities around the world. Mm-hmm. And so um, part of that is church planting uh, and supporting church planting networks. So we don't church, we don't train church planters, but we train trainers who train church planters. Uh, We equip locals to do uh, sort of indigenous uh, church planter training. Um, My job is in content development. And so really, I guess under my purview is everything that doesn't happen sort of in the training kind of classroom context. So 
books, podcasts, articles, blogs, etc. Yep. Um, and then, and mostly I'm trying to harvest and cultivate the wisdom of our global networks. Okay. So we're getting more and more people writing from Latin America and Africa and Asia and Europe, etc. Awesome. Um, it's been mostly material produced in New York and kind of shipped globally. And, and for the last three years, we've been cultivating that global thought leadership. And um, it's a really exciting um, opportunity. And it draws on a lot of the experience, academic experience, because it's cross-cultural. And, yeah. you know, there's that kind of thing. Um, Sorry, I'm letting that giant truck motorcycle or whatever that was tank drive down your street. <laughs> exactly. Uh, one of the downsides of life That's in right. New York City. Yeah. <laughs> so it sounds like the traffic is in your living room. That's right. Um, the, um, but it also draws on the experience at Leadership Journal and other things, coaching writers. And so mm-hmm. a lot of what I'm doing is helping church planters and others, other leaders who have a lot of experience and a lot of expertise uh, in ministry, but not a lot of experience writing. And globally, a lot of people who are, if they're writing in English, maybe their second or third language and they don't feel comfortable putting things on paper. Um, My job in part is helping turn them into uh, confident writers. Right. um, Which is evident evident in the heart of your book as well, which I am pumped to talk about. So you've done a lot, but one of those is writing. So are you at four books currently? Boy, uh, I'm a little embarrassed. I can't answer this. I think this one is six. Six. Okay. This one was number six. Yeah. Okay. Um, and so, I was stalking you on Amazon yesterday. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, it's, I've done a lot of writing myself and uh, well, I think I always wanted to write. I started writing um, I f- in our last move. I found a box of letters that I wrote back and forth to my grandparents when mm-hmm. I was a kid and I would send them long letters describing my baseball games in the summers or whatever, you know, like a journalist approach to whatever, you know, at at 10 years old or whatever. And so I've always loved writing. And I think what I found surprising at leadership journal and in my current role is how much I, uh, how fulfilling I find it to kind of help other people who have something valuable to share, Mm -hmm. kind of gain the skills to share it. Um, I, I don't, I didn't enter the work because I wanted to help other people write. I, I entered it because I wanted to kind of be proximate to writing, you know, for my own reasons. But yeah. uh, for whatever reason, in in all of these years, I found that I really enjoy helping other people. I particularly enjoy helping pastors mm-hmm. because I think that they typically know their voice a little bit and they mm-hmm. kind of know who they are. And yeah. in some ways, they're kind of a step ahead of other writers who don't have to produce something regularly for an audience. Yeah. Um, and and so I enjoy helping them kind of convert that gift of public speaking into uh, writing. Yeah. Well, I know for anyone who writes to any degree, uh, usually being published is a really kind of the ultimate goal that that someone's working toward or the dream. But I'm curious, one thing I really appreciate about your book is the authenticity and honesty with which you write about that and that process. But I'm curious, even just for you, if you could tell me the story of your first publishing experience, like maybe on your first book. Mm-hmm. Um, I put, published my first book two, three years ago. It was very different than what mm-hmm. I thought. And yeah. um, But I'm just curious for you, how and when did that happen? What was the project? How did that mm-hmm. go? Was it what you expected or surprising? Just kind of speak to that first experience with publishing. 
Right. Yeah. So I think, so the very first uh, book publishing uh, opportunity that I had, uh, the book was called The Strategically Small Church. Yep, I saw that. It came out in uh, 2010, I believe. And um, at some some level, it was almost like a a culmination of um, like a work assignment for Leadership Journal. I'm in these conversations with pastors and others. And so I think on the one hand, it was what I learned in that process. I would have wanted to believe Mm -hmm. that I would get a contract because I was just so talented and people just so desperately wanted to hear the things that I had to say. Um, And uh, what I learned in that process is that for the most part, publishers, obviously they want you to have something valuable to say. Yeah. It's not that they don't care about the content, but Mm -hmm. you can have great content and no platform, no Mm -hmm. outlet, um, or no credibility. Mm -hmm. Right. And, uh, you're probably not going to get very far. And so I think what I learned is that the credibility of being a part of leadership journal and kind of in that network of pastor, uh, evangelical publishing broadly was probably the reason I ended up with that, um, with that, that contract. Um, what I have learned uh, so the process, I enjoyed the writing, uh, and the other things, what I have learned, maybe the most striking thing, cause somebody asked me just the other day, who's about to publish their first book and wanted some sort of like, uh, financial perspective, okay. you know, <laughs> like how, how rich should I expect to be? <laughs> yeah. Um, and how quickly, and I told it's them, a short you know, conversation. <laughs> it's a very short <laughs> yeah. conversation. Uh, I think I, I got, I started earning royalties on that book last year. Wow. And it's been out for 10 years. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if people aren't aware, most of the time with a book contract there with a traditional publisher, there's an advance, yep. which is a payment against royalty. So it's kind of, it's the publisher's fi- you know, financial stake to say, if you don't sell any copies, we've given you this amount. Yeah. But then every copy you sell after that, you're sort of paying back, the advance until right. you earn it out and yep. then you receive royalties. And so I, um, yeah, started earning royalties last year. So after 10 years, that's encouraging because I'm not earning royalties yet. And I'm, yes. I just figured like, that's not in the cards for me. <laughs> that's so, right. Well, don't me give hope. up hope. Yeah. Good, seven, good. eight years from now, that <laughs> $5 right. a month check or whatever I'm going to get. <laughs> that's I'm right. Spend wisely. Yeah. It's your annual uh, surprise pizza <laughs> that's money, right? right? Yeah. As long as it's <laughs> Little Caesars. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so uh, you know, if you were to factor out the per hour per year rate of writing mm-hmm. a book, you'd be much better off picking up shifts at a fast food restaurant yeah. than writing a book, yeah. right? Um, and so I think that's the one of the things that struck me is um, the average book does not sell very many copies. Mm -hmm. The average writer, typical writer does not make uh, very much money. Yeah. Which also means that the publishers make very little money on most of the books that they publish and sell. And, um, but we are very captivated by the kind of outlier stories of the people who do exceedingly well. Right. And honestly, those very few people who do exceedingly well kind of skew the average numbers anyway right yeah um so they're factoring in when you get the average you're factoring jk rowling's numbers in with right. you know with someone who sold 50 copies right and that gives you an average that's right <laughs> so, um so uh yeah so i think it, it it's a lot of work 
for very little financial payoff for uh, so far I have not found fame mm-hmm. in writing. And so there's got to be something motivating you uh, in the writing other than really fame good. and fortune. Yep. Um, and I think that for me, it has been uh, partly that I have the, it's how I work through questions. So mm-hmm. I have questions that I'm asking. I don't know what I think about those things yep. until I process through them in writing. Um, and, uh, and it is serving a small group of people who are responding to the, you know, to that process. Um, but it, but it's not my, it's not my, uh, it may be a vocation, but it's not my job. Yeah. Uh, Meaning it's something I do feel called to keep doing, Mm -hmm. but it's not what earns the, the living for my family. And at this current rate, it won't be, um, in the foreseeable future. And that's just fine. Yeah. Well, um, thankfully you've chosen to live in the most expensive city on the planet. <laughs> right. So I'm very strategic about these things. <laughs> that's right. You only have to sell on par with Stephen King to afford to live in Manhattan. <laughs> that's exactly right. <laughs> yeah. I, I do fear that sometimes when somebody's byline says, so-and-so is a writer who lives in Manhattan, yeah. people think, wow, they must sell a million copies. I think, yeah. No, they're probably a bartender who's that's also right. a writer who right. lives in Manhattan. So. Yeah. Well, book is again called Writing for Life and Ministry. And uh, I told you this before we started, but I really, really mean it. I, I think this is the most helpful book on the writing, on both the like preparation and the process of writing that I've ever read. And I am very process oriented. And so that's one of the things I really appreciate about the book. But I was curious as I was reading it yesterday, did this start as a workshop that you taught in that it is just such a, you did such a great job writing in a linear manner that if, if you have like the aspiration to write, this is a, the perfect book for you to start with just aspiration to develop an idea to get through to a, a finished product. So for, did it start as a workshop or a different kind of training that you did? Great question. Yeah. So it started, uh, I think little seeds of it began when I was coaching uh, individual writers. So uh, for a little while, part of what I'd did to pay the bills during grad school was helping first time writers who I think all of them were pastors. Okay. Um, kind of go from the idea stage of the book through submitting a manuscript. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, I was their coach, not, not a ghostwriter or anything. So I was just kind of with them in the journey. And so some of the big ideas began to kind of cohere there. And I found what people need in that process is for someone to demystify the writing process. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so I think if there's any, if there's something unique in the tone of the book, I think it's partly that, that yeah. much as I like the idea of a writer going into a cabin in the woods and coming out with the next great American novel, yeah. you know, um, that happens to very few of us. Mm -hmm. And for the rest of us, it's just a matter of like sitting down and doing the work. Right. And here's the work, you know? So, um, so in part it developed there, but the, the version that it's in now developed, uh, as a workshop that I did with a group of church planters from Europe, Mm -hmm. um, who wanted to write a collection of essays by European church planners for European church planners. Mm -hmm. And only one of them I think had ever published before. The rest okay. of them were kind of brand new to the process. And so it forced me to, to, and this is in my role at City to City, to kind of take that stuff that had been out there that I kind of had put together and really f- formalize it into a process to take a group of people from formulating an idea to the yeah. end. 
Um, and it was a great exercise because they're busy people, but also because, as I mentioned, several of, I mean, you're, you're helping people think through the writing process and not in their native language. They were all writing in English because the conference that they were going to be doing was going to be in English, but it was no one's native language. And so the, it needed to be simple and direct and all yeah. those things just so that that the process itself didn't get in the way. Right. Um, and so I learned a ton in that yeah. uh, experience and really enjoyed it. And that's, uh, yeah, so that's, that's where yeah. this thing came from um, really in, in many ways that experience. Okay. Yeah. My yeah. book is on a uh, sermon preparation process. Mm-hmm. And I also know that one of the reasons that you write a book is so you can stop explaining to people how you, <laughs> you can exactly. just start to say, you know what, here's an Amazon yeah. link. Just pick this up. This is everything I think about this topic. <laughs> That's right. Well, and I do have a, a little short uh, section in there, a short chapter called your best 30 minutes. And uh-huh. that's, uh, that's kind of it, right? Yeah. Is to say, uh, I think every pastor, anybody who's ever led a workshop or done consulting or whatever has this kind of stump speech yep. that they give over and over and over again. Yep. And some people want to keep giving it because they're invited to give it. And some people are ready to say, you know what, I'd rather, rather be able to email you a PDF that's right. or something. And I think that's actually a great place if you're not accustomed to putting your ideas into print. Yeah. That's a great place to start is yep. to say, I explain this at least once a week and I'd like to stop doing that. So here's here's what I think yeah. on this top. Um, well, one thing I think is really unique about your background and even what you're trying to do with this book is it is specifically geared toward helping pastors and ministry leaders become mm-hmm. either better or for the first time become writers. And so I was wondering, do you, do you think that it is a must for ministry leaders to become or view themselves? Cause I feel like I remember a day when the average pastor probably didn't really think about that they were going to write a book someday. It was like enough for them just to be a pastor. And now I feel like culture has changed within so much of at least Western evangelicalism, where if you're not in addition to pastoring your church, also running like some version of a media company, it's kind of like, (laughs) what what do you do with all of your time? (laughs) I was just wondering the, and I think I know your answer to this, but do you think it's a must these days in some fashion or form for ministry leaders to write? Yeah. So I think there's two ways to answer that. And one way is to say, do I think that every pastor ought to ultimately write a book and do the speaking circuit and yeah. et cetera? And I think the answer to that is no. Yes. Um, I I think that there's something like a million books published in America every year. Mm-hmm. I would I don't want to guess a percentage, but I would say the vast majority of them are not adding a whole lot of new material into the conversation but there is this sense of like how do i know i've made it it's because you know i've crossed these milestones and one of them is publishing a book yeah i would love for american evangelical ministry leaders to get out of that mindset yeah um however that being said i do think that there's it is probably essential for every ministry leader to think of themselves as a writer in the more kind of mundane sense that you will probably have to produce a curriculum of some sort. You will probably have to write a newsletter. You will probably have to at minimum adapt mm-hmm. material that you're, you know, you're buying a catechism or children's mm-hmm. ministry curriculum or small group something. And it's like 40% helpful for you. And yeah. you've got to supplement the other 60% to make it work where you do ministry. Right. Mm-hmm. And so I think at the very least, um, people in ministry, whether it's local church ministry or parachurch, whatever it is, 
you really do need to think about the fact that at some point your leadership involves writing things for either to, to get your message out beyond your church or your parachurch or to attract donors or whatever mm -hmm. it is, or even just enriching your leadership within your local congregation. If you're only preaching one sermon a week, then that's six days of the week that people are not engaging with you. And maybe you should think about how you can, you know, supplement not to create something massive, but just yeah. to communicate in print. Yeah. And so I think in that sense, yeah, the, we live in a digital age, data driven, content driven, etc. And I do think there's a sense in which all ministry leaders need to just reckon with the fact that part of what you do in that, in this world is yeah. you communicate not just in an oral form, but also in a written form. Yeah. I mean, we were joking about it a second ago, but I, I do think that especially if you want to be able to move on to past having to have the same sort of conversations yeah. over and over, one of the advantages is having the ability to to write things down and to be able to send yep. that, to be able to cover maybe a wider variety of topics more deeply than just having the same. And I understand it's a matter of where do you want to invest the time? Do you want to invest mm -hmm. in the same conversation over and over for the entirety of your ministry? Or do you want to do the hard work of which you help with in this book of, of writing it down so that you can then move on to some other things? That's right. Yeah. And I know in our, in, in our church um, here in Manhattan, we, a couple of years ago, went through a sermon series that was, it's a relatively new church. I guess we'd be in our third year. Okay. Although time, time has sort of stopped That's right. know, here, yeah. here because we haven't met since March. Um, but the, um, we went through a sermon series about a year and a half ago on the sort of four or five fundamental values kind of vision casting for the yeah. church. And um, the a, a long-term goal was to take those sermons and then turn them into little booklets mm -hmm. that could be available at the check-in yeah. or could be sent via email or used in kind of new member classes. And I think that's a great um, example of what you're talking about, which is if these ideas are important enough, a lot of churches preach on vision and values once mm -hmm. a year. You know, yep. If you're going to preach on it every year, um, if it's that important, it's probably important enough to have it in print in yeah, a distributable form. That doesn't mean you can't ever preach on it again. Yeah. Um, but it means that that's the kind of uh, community formation material that is critical enough. You want it in multiple formats. Yeah. Um, and so I think that kind of content production for sure is the kind of thing that more ministry leaders should probably be thinking about. Yeah. You mentioned a few minutes ago about how you think that uh, a lot of pastors have a slight advantage sometimes when they come to writing because they know their voice and they're used to, I mean, studying and producing content in some fashion or form. Mm -hmm. So do you think there's a specific way where, but, but, but at the same time, speaking and writing are like two different muscles to some degree, but yeah, is there sure. a way in which the two really can serve one another? Can speaking make you a better writer and writer make, writing make you a better speaker? Yeah, that's a great question. So I think, yes, I, I think um, speaking makes, I think, yes. So the two are definitely separate skill sets. Mm -hmm. um, they, uh, they supplement one another in the sense that I think if you're accustomed to speaking, the two advantages that you have are you're, you're used to speaking to a very specific audience. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of times writers, you know, if you write a book proposal or even submit an article to a magazine or yeah. something, people will ask like, who, who wants Who's to your read audience? this? Yeah. Who's your audience? And you're thinking, well, everybody. I think, yeah. no, everybody is, that's what you want, but yeah. everybody is not going to be interested in this. A certain 
subset of people are going to resonate. And I think uh, pastors uh, who, who have, you know, a congregation that responds to them uh, regularly, they know who they're writing. Their audience is those people who assemble on Sunday morning, mm -hmm. right? Not everyone. It's those people. And I know pastors in the city here who will write at the top of their notes each week, like here's a non-Christian, uh, you know, a non-Christian person in the community. Mm -hmm. I know here's a, you know, teenager and here's a, uh, an older dad or something. And yeah. like those people stay in their minds in sermon prep. Yeah. Um, and I think if you've got something like that kind of habit of keeping actual congregants in mind, then you're all, you're way down the road from someone who's never thought about like, who, who do I write for? You know, who's yeah. my particular audience. Yeah. So you've got that advantage. I think another advantage is a lot of writers um, don't really know what they have to contribute. They don't really know their voice or they don't trust their contribution. Mm -hmm. And I think uh, people who speak regularly have figured out, you know, when I talk about this thing this way, yeah, it's authentic to me and it connects with people, right? And so that's kind of finding your voice, your natural voice. Mm -hmm. And so I think those two things, kind of knowing who you are as a writer and who your audience is, are, are the two big hurdles mm -hmm. in writing. And I think ministry leaders have a, advantage in that sense that they're, yeah. they know those two things. Yeah. I think the disadvantages are, you know, there are all these tools available to you when you're speaking like long, awkward pauses yep. or eye contact or sarcasm or sarcasm. All yeah. That. yeah. And you don't get any of those when you're writing. Right. Um, and so you have to, it's, you're suddenly, it's like you have to sit on your hands in a dark room and communicate. Right. And, and what's left is what you have to work with, with writing. Now, I think print can do things that, that a, a public, you know, live presentation can't do. Yeah. Um, but that's a different skill set. So you have to kind of, uh, there are certain advantages you have as a, as a pastor or ministry leader, there's also some liabilities. You just kind of have some habits that you have developed that if you just try to translate those directly into print, it's not going to work. Right. Um, and I find publishers are not a big fan of you in, including emojis in your, in your writing. I feel yet. like if, if yeah. yeah, that's right. I feel like if publishing a book, we're like texting, I have the spiritual gift of finding the right gif. And right. if we can find a way to merge these two things, I might be the next JK Rowling. Nice. Nice. Well, I, you know, give it a year. That's I right. Think, uh... That's right. Well, I do. I, one of the things I really do like that you talk a lot about, especially in the first half of the, the first part of the book, is you do hit directly and indirectly a lot of the emotional components that come along mm, with writing. Yeah. And it is a very emotional process, but yeah. I wanted to ask you a question about motives in writing. Mm. And we've kind of touched on this a little bit, but, but what do you think are some of the internal drivers that pastors and ministry leaders, writers in general, people should be mindful of due to the threat that they do pose. Like you mentioned in your book mm. that a big driver for you early on that you had to reckon with and, and identify was the desire to be important, I think mm. is the work that you, yeah, yeah. the word that you used. So what do you think are some internal drivers that if you were to encourage people yeah. who aspire to write to, to, to tell them like, here's what, here's what the most sustainable motives are for you. And here's the ones you should really be leery of. Yeah. That's a great question. Yeah. I think, um, yeah, I think the the drive to be important is uh, that one's present with me, and I think with a lot of other people, I think there's a desire, you know, the desire to 
I mean, we talk a lot about in evangelical circles, you know, we're world changers yeah. and we're all this kind of stuff. And I think there is this sense that you're going to, you're going to write this thing that um, you could paint the motive as I want to be helpful. Mm-hmm. I want people to be helped. Yeah. I think the shadow side of that is you want to be known as the person who is helpful, mm-hmm. right? Like there's the, the ego side of it is, um, I want to be recognized as the person who has this thoughtful thing to say, yep. or I want to be the sought after, you know, you see that in the byline sought after speaker, yep. best selling. I mean, all of those things are kind of status indicators of, uh, that we might use to determine our worth yep. our value. Yep. Right. Um, also so- the sought after speaker thing, if we could like take a collective vote to delete that, there is nothing <laughs> more desperate and pretentious than your byline reading. I'm a sought after speaker. That's right. Goodness yeah, gracious. because I think technically if your mom's church invites you <laughs> that's right. to lead the Bible study once, then I think that yeah. you have been sought after. That's right. So, you know, <laughs> it, it either is totally pretentious or totally meaningless or both. That's right. <laughs> so, 100%. So. <laughs> So, yeah, I think there's a lot of, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm steeped in my job, Redeemer City mm-hmm. City. We talk about a lot about the gospel and the gospel renewal. And, and so I'm, I'm, I'm uh, conditioned to kind of think through the things that we need to, we need the gospel to address. Mm-hmm. And I think one of those things is the sort of, you know, am I enough? Yeah. And I think that a lot of people will write because they, we, f- we may feel this urge that uh, we're squandering, we're being a poor steward of our influence if the only people who hear me speak are my congregation mm-hmm. or the small group of people that I'm an, uh, affiliated with. It's a real kind of corporate way of viewing your gifts, right? That there's a low return on investment if yeah. I spend all week preach, you know, prep, prepping a sermon and only 100 people hear it. Yeah. Um, I don't think God keeps score that way, mm-hmm. um, but it's, that's a, something that we have to be mindful of. That Am, yeah. am I doing this really and truly? as a ministry to other people, or am I using this process as a uh, way to say, you know, I'm bigger than this church that mm-hmm. I lead, or I'm larger than this congreg- mm-hmm. this uh, denomination that asked me to speak at the annual meeting or, you know, whatever. Yeah. Um, and so I would watch that. I think the, the need to be important, the need to be uh, kind of the game changer, um, the need to be, you know, part of right now, I think part of the culture war, mm-hmm. right? And either whichever of the tribes it is to be recognized as sort of a thought leader in my tribe yeah, is a really strong impulse. Totally is. Um, and so I think a better, the right motives are, um, can I bring clarity about this really unclear thing? Um, can I, to a people, American culture right now is just uh, a wash in bad information, misinformation, yeah. conspiracy theories, all kinds of things. I can't tell you how often I, I don't have to, you know, cause mm-hmm. you see it, you're on yeah. social media or whatever. I mean, how, how often people say there's just so much information out there. I don't even know what to believe anymore. Yeah. And I think if Christians are saying, I don't even know what information to believe anymore, we're in really bad shape yeah. when we are people who are hungry for the truth, yeah. right? So if you're motivated by kind of cu- helping people cut through the noise and saying, "Look, here, here are some ways to th- to to think about the world uh, right now, or mm-hmm. to 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 navigate through what's happening right now," um, I think those are the right motives, mm-hmm. um, or to bring clarity, or to um, to 
even to art to speak to a group that's often not spoken to. So I think one of the things that Tim Keller has done really well is he writes about spiritual things to people who aren't necessarily spiritual, who aren't yeah. necessarily Christians. Yeah. Um, and so I think what he's done is really not innovated the subject matter so much as he's, uh, you know, kind the of audience articul the yeah. articulated, yeah, shifted the audience. Yeah. And so if you, if you look around and say, you know, there's a lot of great parenting resources for moms and not a lot of great parenting resources for dads, mm -hmm. or there's a lot of great stuff about this subject, but it doesn't connect with the people in this life situation. Right. Then, then I think that f finding that uh, audience who needs something yep. it should be the kind of primary motivator, right? Totally. Um, so who you're writing for becomes, I think, a really great motivation for writing to make yeah. sure that they have what they need. Um, and that, that's not just a motive. It actually becomes helpful in when you're writing, when you're making decisions about what material do I keep and what do I cut and mm -hmm. what do I explain? All of that stuff's determined by who your audience is. Yeah, that's right. But before you even get there, it's just the motive of why am I writing? I'm mm -hmm. writing so that these particular people can get the help that they need. Yeah. Um, I think that that's the right motive. And it may be that there are a hundred million of those people out there. Yeah. It may be that there are a hundred of those people out there. And I, I, the world measures success by the larger audience. Mm -hmm. I think God measures success by the faithfulness to whatever size that audience yeah, is. That's really good. Um, and so, but I think that that, that is a count. It's not just a countercultural message in the world broadly. It's also a countercultural thing in our, our evangelical subculture. It is. Yeah. Um, bigger is better for mm -hmm. us. It just, it is. Yeah. Um, and so I think, um, yeah, well, I think I'm rambling now, but no, I, I think I think one, one way that you summed it, like this is one of my favorite sentences that you wrote in the book that I actually shared with a friend this morning. Hmm. You wrote, "The goal shouldn't be to publish something, but to make something." Hmm. And I think yeah. I think in so many of these other, if your goal is impact, you know, world changing impact, or your goal is to sell a million copies, or your goal is even just to be published. If that yeah. is the goal, not a byproduct of the desire to make something, I think you just, you set yourself up for so much disappointment yeah. because very rarely does something that you write change the world. It might change right. this tiny part of your world, but it doesn't change right. the world. And right. uh, so I just thought that was, that was such succinct, helpful feedback and way to capture all of that. But another thing that you wrote that I really liked was if we can demystify the process, we can master it. And so you talked yeah. about that a few minutes ago, but when you think about the things that are mystical to people about writing, what are some of the things that you think tend to mystify people the most about it? Yeah. Great question. Yeah. I think a lot of people think that a writer is a, like a certain class of people uh, with special like spiritual gifts or something who just receive messages and then write them down, yeah. you know? Um, and probably there have been a couple of those and somehow that becomes the norm yeah. <laughs> for yeah. everybody. But I think if you can even, so, so a lot of, for a lot of people, they think I just don't have anything to say. I don't have, you know, I don't have 50,000 words worth of, of ideas on that mm -hmm. topic. And I would say, well, first of all, that may be true and that may be okay. So like everything doesn't have to be a book. Yeah. Um, and uh, actually, a, a, a friend of mine, Sky Jatani, who I used to work with at Leadership Journal and is a, a, a great writer, ha, ha, is 
said somewhere, I don't know if it was written somewhere, if he said it somewhere that most books should have been an article and most articles should have been a tweet. Um, that, you know, that like it, we have a tendency to say more than we need to say. Yep. Um, and, you know, we don't, so we don't need to try to fill volumes. Um, but I think that one of, so one of the things we get kind of mystified by is the idea of saying all this stuff. And I think part of the writing process is figuring out what you have to say. Yeah. So if you have some little, uh, a sentence worth of insight on something, write it down yeah. and then say, what's the next sentence? And it literally is just a matter of writing one sentence after another um, and, and developing the, um, the sort of muscle memory of doing that, the conditioning, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, it's like anything else. Nobody's a marathon runner until they yep. train to be a marathon runner. And a lot of people are natural uh, maybe process naturally in writing, but that doesn't necessarily make them a writer mm -hmm. if they're never turning it into something. If they're just journaling for hours and then throwing it away, yeah. they are writing, but, but, but there's a discipline to taking that and turning it into something that people can engage and receive. Yeah. Um, and that takes conditioning. Yeah. So I think part of it is trying to get past the idea that there are natural born mm -hmm uh, writers and that there are, there's, and then there's everybody else. Yeah. I think actually everybody, just like public speakers the people who have great natural gifts for public speaking, mm -hmm. they still have to get better. Right. Um, and when they do it week in and week out, they get better and better and better. Yeah. And when they stop doing it for three months, they get back in and they're like, Ooh, I'm rusty. I need right. to, you know? And so I think part of it is that the idea that it's uh, kind of a special class of people. I remember when I wanted to do my PhD and was not sure if I was, the kind of person who should do a PhD. Mm -hmm. One of my professors said is, uh, told me that the only skill you need is to be able to sit in one place for long periods of time. Yeah. And, uh, I thought that was really that's sarcastic, yeah. <laughs> but it was yeah. actually right. Yeah. And I thought really that's all any writing requires yeah. is wake up, do it for 30 minutes, do it every day. Yeah. It's exactly the same thing that's necessary for getting into shape or yeah. eating better or whatever. It's just doing it. Yeah. Um, I know a huge thing for me, like that I, that I figured out through writing and this, I think started because I do tend to almost full manuscript, even my sermons on Sunday. Mm -hmm. But um, I thought that I should really know what I want to say before I start to write. And I find right. that more often than not in reality, I figure out what I'm trying to say as I write. That's and so right. I think yeah. because I wasn't certain beforehand, what is it that I'm trying to say? I wouldn't write. Rather than right. now, I think I've been doing it long enough that I find that if I jump into it, somehow you like, you find your way to whatever it is. That's right. Yeah, I completely agree. I, I process the same way. So I have an idea. Sometimes it's something that I intuit or I have this kind of mm -hmm. gut sense about something. I still won't be able to articulate it even to myself yep. until I write it out. Yep. Um, and sometimes, I think I mentioned this in the in the book, sometimes in my personal daily writing that may be like, I'm just writing to myself yeah. and it will kind of look like journaling, but it's like, I had this, I'm having this idea and I don't really know how to express it, but it's such, and just even in the process of writing it out, mm -hmm. um, I can kind of untie that knot. And then I might find out that like, Oh, there's some implications here. I need to know more about this, this, and this. Well, now yeah. I've got that's tomorrow, Wednesday and yeah. you know, Thursday yeah. or whatever. That's like, you now kind of have your, your path. Yeah. Um, but it, yeah, it's exactly, you're exactly right that I think if you don't, if you think you don't have something to say, 
and therefore you won't ever write anything, then it's kind of a self-fulfilling process, totally. right? You yeah. won't ever write anything. Right. But if you'll just sit down and give it 30 minutes and try, uh, I think that most people will be surprised by what comes out yeah. in that time. Yeah. Um, and maybe not the first time, but maybe the third time that they set the timer and they write yeah. for a set period of time. Um, and that's what I think some people confuse uh, inspiration. They think of inspiration as that thought that comes to you out of nowhere. Right. Really, I think inspiration is that thought that comes to you after five days of writing for 30 minutes and not quite getting it right. And then yep. you go, aha, here it is. Right. And then you write it down. But that thought didn't come from nowhere. It came from the previous several days of just sitting down and, right. and doing it. Yeah. Um, and so I think that that mystical idea of inspiration is another one that people need to fight against that yeah. these, these ideas have origins and the origin is usually several unglamorous days of writing, yeah. you know, that, that pay off yeah. every now and then yeah, totally <laughs> into something bigger. Yeah. yeah. Well, you've been super generous with your time. So I just want to thank you again for spending some for time him. with me. Yeah. And, uh, and also I just want to reiterate that if you have any aspiration to write at all, uh, and and genuinely, this will be what I started to do. If I start to rec recommend one book on that, I think it will be this one because mm -hmm. of how regardless of where you are in the process, even if it's just this sort of itching desire inside of you to say something, I do think that I've not found another book that can help take you by the hand and walk you through that process. Mm -hmm. And so that was taking the time to actually do that is a tremendous gift to us. So um, I've already sent your link for people to buy it. We'll share it on social media, but I would really encourage uh, anyone and everyone to uh, make this the next Harry Potter. I feel like that's the goal. <laughs> thank you. My children and grandchildren would thank that's you as right. well. So. <laughs> that's right. Well, thank uh, you so much for doing this. It's been my pleasure. Thank you so much for the time.